uh, is going to be along. We've been praying uh, for Lucas. He has been undergoing uh, treatment for cancer, and we're going to hear a little bit of an update uh, from him. So if you can make it out uh, this evening, it would be good, uh, be good to see you. I'm not sure what comes into your mind uh, when you hear the word uh, Puritan. Uh, maybe it's something uh, like this uh, supposed Puritan Valentine card. You almost make my heart dance, and dancing is forbidden. Uh, not sure that Puritans really bothered with Valentine cards. Uh, but Puritans are, are popularly uh, portrayed as, as people who were afraid that somebody somewhere was having a good time. Or there were people who banned Christmas, maybe you've uh, heard that uh, about them, or they were grim-faced legalists. In reality, uh, the Puritans were very godly men and women. Uh, they took the Christian life with the utmost uh, seriousness, and as a result, they found a deep-rooted joy uh, in the Lord Jesus Christ, despite the fact they were often persecuted, uh, they were fined, they were imprisoned, uh, they were driven into exile. Amid all these difficulties, the Puritans often found great help and comfort from the Psalms. Uh, As one writer notes, they used the Psalms to interpret uh, their life experiences. For as another says, they had endured persecution and their feelings were mirrored in the Psalms. Well, I wonder if you ever thought about the Psalms uh, in that way. That when we read the Psalms, what we find there are expressions of what it's like to live the Christian life. They provide a mirror for our souls. For as someone has put it, they show the soul in communion with God poured out upon a page. In our age of smartphones, uh, there are apps for everything. Uh, If you're discussing some issue with a friend, they'll often say to you, well, there's an app for that. And in days gone past, going through some experience in the Christian life, I think a Puritan might have said to you, there's a psalm for that. And uh, again, uh, we have a little picture here, a contemporary uh, wood engraving uh, of, no, we don't have a wood engraving. Uh, The picture has disappeared, but uh, there was a little picture there of uh, a Puritan doing what Puritans did, got the family around together and they taught them the psalms because they knew that's what the Christian life uh, was going going to be like. Because the Psalms address the real problems of real Christian living. And they've much to teach us about the Christian life, and in particular, about the rough and tumble of the Christian life. Indeed, as pastor and writer Josh Moody says, the Psalms scare people that wish the Bible said only things that sound nice and pious. And one such Psalm is Psalm 13, the Psalm that we're going to look at together this morning. A Psalm which deals with a tough time. Uh, in King David's life. So if you want to have that uh, psalm before you this morning, that would be helpful. If you have a church Bible, it's on page uh, 548. Uh, so if you want to, uh, want to turn there. And the psalm really opens uh, with the idea of David's distress in verses 1 and 2. As someone has noted, the psalm begins like storm-tossed waves breaking upon the shore. David's turbulent and plaintive cry is, How long? O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? No one's exactly sure what situation David is facing here, but it appears that the likely outcome is death. And whatever the exact circumstances, two dimensions of David's experience are clear. 
First of all, we see that this phrase or this question, how long, is repeated four times. Here is one of David's major problems, an ongoing situation in his life for which there is no apparent resolution. He's dealing with one of the most difficult situations that we can deal with in life, ongoing distress where there is no relief in sight. John Piper, already mentioned by Anita this morning to to tee me up, John Piper writes, we find it difficult to live by a faith that is not nurtured by the hope that tomorrow things will be better. That's our great hope so often, isn't it? It keeps us going. Tomorrow things will be better. But when that's not the case, then we really struggle. We really struggle. Old Baptist preacher Andrew Fuller put it, it is not under the sharpest but the longest trials that we are most in danger of fainting. And this is often the reality in our lives. We look out at our circumstances, and as the old phrase goes, it hasn't gone away, you know. There's no solution to that health problem. No solution to that broken relationship. No solution to that problem in work. Those financial difficulties are still going to be there tomorrow and next month and next year. Those people that we've been praying for, it seems, for, for half a lifetime. And still we see no change in their lives. No end in sight. It's wearing and it's wearying. And then our hearts were left crying out in distress, How long, O Lord? How long, how long, how long? Perhaps we find ourselves at the, the point of despair. Perhaps we find ourselves feeling that we, we can't cope any longer. We can't go on. We're going round in circles. And like David, we're re- left wrestling with our own thoughts. Day after day after day. Week after week after week. Month after month after month. But then perhaps some well-meaning person says, well, you know what you need to do? You need to turn to the Lord. You need to turn to the Lord and pray about it and and everything will be fine. Which brings us, I think, to the second aspect of David's distress here in Psalm 13. He says, will you forget me forever? Will you forget me forever? It's not that David hasn't turned to the Lord. It's not that David hasn't prayed. Instead, he has turned to the Lord and prayed, but in his distress, he feels that he has been abandoned by God. He's prayed and God hasn't intervened. He has prayed, but it's like God forgets that he even exists. You ever felt like that? You ever felt that God has abandoned you? It's not the sort of thing that we like to say out loud. Good Christians don't talk like that. Do they? Well, David did. This man, after God's own heart, spoke like this. And one of the reasons that this psalm is recorded for us is to remind us that, as Zimbabwean pastor John Bell puts it, feeling down and far from God is not unusual, and it's not unbiblical. It's not unusual, and it's not unbiblical. And the reality is that many of those whom we hold up as the heroes of the faith have gone through such experiences. We remember them for their great accomplishments. But for many, the reality of their spiritual pilgrimage has been an extremely difficult one. Although only 29 years old when he died, David Brainerd inspired generations of missionaries. 
William Carey, David Livingstone, Jim Elliot. And yet most of his short ministry was conducted under the intense physical strain of tuberculosis and the mental pain of the chronic depression that ran in his family. And all the time he was working alone, working alone in the the howling wilderness of the American colonies, seeking to reach the native Indians who were unresponsive. At times he neither, neither felt love for God nor love to God. One occasion he wrote in his diary, was so overwhelmed with dejection that I knew not how to live. I longed for death exceedingly. My soul was sunk in deep waters and the floods were ready to drown me. I was so much oppressed that my soul was in a kind of horror. One of more than 20 occasions when Brainerd wrote in his diary that he just wanted to die. He just wanted to die. It's sobering, isn't it, that a Christian can feel like that? But read the biographies of so many Christians whom we uphold as heroes. And we find that this is the type of experience that they they went through. Martin Luther, William Cooper, the great hymn writer, C.H. Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, C.S. Lewis, our own local boy made good, and so on. This is the real experience of real Christians. And you too may have to face up to those times in your life when you feel that you've been abandoned by God. And you sense that your prayers are not being answered when God doesn't seem to intervene. And when those times come in your life, remember this. You do not have to pretend that everything is okay when it's not. You don't have to pretend that everything is okay when it's not. This psalm is one of many that reminds us that such an experience can be real in the life of a believer. Nor must you conclude that you've done something wrong. That's another common reaction to these dark times in our lives. But that is not how God operates in the lives of His children. In some tit-for-tat fit of temper. Some of those who have been God's greatest and most faithful servants have been those who have gone through the deepest and the darkest times. The struggles we experience as Christians are not signs of a faith failure, as some people try to make us believe. Indeed, it's often quite the reverse. It is those who have been most faithful to God who have found their faith most severely tested. Go home and read the beginning of the book of Job. Why was Job tested? Because he was faithful. Because he was faithful. So David's here in these opening verses confronting two of the the toughest experiences that we can confront as Christians. Long-term difficulties that seem to offer no improvement or resolution. And those times when God does not intervene, indeed, he seems to withdraw himself and withdraw his comfort. And when these two things combine, it causes heartfelt distress. But secondly, we see in verses 3 and 4 that David's response to this situation then is to pray. It's a prayer that's heartfelt and it reflects his distress. He says, look on me and answer, O Lord my God. From the depths of his being, David cries out to God. 
Despite the anguish caused by this ongoing situation, despite the anguish caused by God's failure to intervene, despite the sense that God is far from him, he continues to pray, he continues to call out to God. I think the first thing that we see here is that David's prayer helps us to understand the relationship between prayer and faith. It reinforces to us the fact that the problem is not a lack of faith in David's part. As we have seen when we experience tough times in the Christian life, some people try to say to us, oh, it's because you have very little faith. But as David shows us, nothing could be further from the truth. If David really lacked faith, he would have stopped praying. He would have stopped praying. And so too it is with us this morning. If you're still praying about those difficult situations in your life, then hopefully you can see that the problem has nothing to do with a lack of faith on your part. Your faith may be buffeted. You may feel under attack. You may feel under duress. You may struggle with what God is permitting you to go through at this time in your life. You may feel that your prayers are bouncing back to you off the ceiling. But if you're still praying, then you're still holding on to God in faith. As we know, there are many Christians around our world who suffer greatly for their faith. They're beaten, imprisoned, executed. People who have largely been forgotten by the world, like Twen. Twen's an Eritrean Christian. In 2004, a few months after becoming a Christian, she was put in prison for her faith. She was given an indefinite prison sentence in 2004. 2019, Twen is still in prison in Eritrea. She has been beaten. She has been tortured. She has endured the most inhumane living conditions. Do we honestly think this morning that she has never prayed for her release? Does God say, Twen, I'm not answering you because you lack faith. We wouldn't dare lecture these people about faith. The issue is not one of a faith failure. And in the midst of our distress, the problem is not one of faith failure, as in faith we continue to cry out to God. In this prayer, David simply cries out to God in his distress. Yes, the Lord hasn't intervened. David has this sense he isn't being heard. David has this sense of his soul is in turmoil. But what does he do? He continues to cry out to God. For where else can he go? Who else can he turn to? What else can he do but cry out to God? He discovers that in Alec Mateer's phrase, at the end of his tether, there's a place called prayer. At the end of our tether, there's a place called prayer. And the same is true for us. Real prayer is something that arises from the depths of our being. It is the cry of our heart to the heart of God. If we're honest, our prayers are often routine and they're often formulaic. But when we find ourselves in situations that are tough and testing, then there's a welling up of prayer from within us, from the very depths of our being as we cry out to God. When we're at the end of our tether, what else can we do but cry out to God? Read through the Bible, and time after time you will find prayers like that. 
Read through the lives of God's people from the past and you will find prayers like that. But it must occur to us to ask, well, why does God lead us through such situations? Why does God not just answer our prayers when we ask? Well, I want you for a moment or two to, to picture Downton Abbey. Picture Downton Abbey and picture Lord Grantham sitting in an armchair in the drawing room. He wants something. What does he do? He rings the bell. And Carson comes in and says, yes, my lord, how can I be of, be of assistance? And Lord Grantham says, Carson, my good man, uh, peel me a few grapes. And what does Carson do? He, he does as he's bid. But that's not prayer. That's not prayer. Prayer is not getting God to run an errand for us. Picture Holby City instead. The patient lying in her bed. She's bedridden and there's one of those dramatic moments when she begins to feel increasingly unwell and we're fearful of what might appear next on the screen. What does she do? She too rings a bell. And she rings and rings and rings until a medic appears. She has no other choice. She is utterly dependent upon the medical staff. That's prayer. That's prayer. Not getting God to do our bidding, but expressing our complete and utter dependence upon him. And when God leads us through those testing times in our lives, that's what he's doing. He's teaching us the true nature of our relationship with him. That he leads us to understand that we are completely and utterly dependent upon him. And he will never fail us. And he will never fail us. Secondly, we see here that David's prayer also points us to the great goal of prayer. Verse 3. He says, give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. He says, Lord, answer me or I will die. Well, prayer doesn't get any more serious than that, does it? Well, actually it does. For David continues, my enemy will say I have overcome him and my foes will rejoice when I fall. David is saying, Lord, if you don't answer my prayer, I will die a failure. And if I die a failure, my enemies will laugh at me, but not just at me. They will laugh at you. They will say he trusted in God. And where did that get him? Where did that get him? See, lying behind all of this is not only David's great distress, but this desire for the glory of God's name. David is praying that the Lord, or to the Lord, that his enemies would not gain the upper hand, because that will lead them to mock God. And in doing this, he's pointing us to the great goal of our prayers, the glory of God's name. As Christians, this is ultimately what our lives are about. We are those who are seeking the glory of God's name. We are those who want God to be exalted in our lives. And that must be the object of our prayers. Even as we cry out to God in distress, our prayer must be, Lord, glorify your name through your answer to my prayer. Answer my prayers, yes. But however you answer them, bring glory to your name. 
Again, if we're honest, when we pray, such an idea is often very far from our thoughts. Our thoughts are often turned in upon ourselves. But as Christians, our horizons in prayer ought to be so much greater. They ought to be shaped by a desire that God would answer our prayer and in doing so bring glory to his name. And prayer is ultimately depending on God to do that, to glorify his name. But we don't know how he's going to do that. We don't know how he's going to do that. As we pray in faith, we long for him to do so. As we pray in faith, we have confidence that however God answers our prayers, by saying yes, by saying no, by saying yes but not yet, and I think very commonly saying yes, but not in the way that you think, he will bring glory to his name. Such a prayer requires holy boldness. But however God answers our prayer, He will glorify his name. In all of this, as in all things, our great example, of course, is Jesus. Jesus, who in agony of soul in the garden prayed, If it is possible, may this cup pass from me. The great human instinct. Yet, yet not my will but yours be done. His prayer has in mind the greater glory of God. And through submitting himself to God's will, what happened? He brought salvation to us and incalculable glory to the name of God. The third part of the psalm, verses 5 and 6, then focus on David's resolve. This section is notable for a very different tone from the, the rest of the psalm. The earlier sections will be marked by distress and heartfelt cries to God. These verses have a very different tone. What accounts for that change of tone? And David's experience is not quite clear. However, we see that it is having prayed that the tone changes. Perhaps it reflects the words of the, the Danish writer Soren Kierkegaard, who noted that Prayer does not change God, but it changes the one who prays. We see, first of all, that this change of tone is marked by the word but. As David says, but, verse 5, I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. This is better translated, but I have trusted in your unfailing or steadfast love. He's saying that this is the way that he has chosen throughout his life. His way has been the way of trusting in God. He has chosen the way of believing in God's unfailing love, his covenant love for his people. What we see here is David, if you like, recommitting his life to God. He's saying, whatever happens, Lord, I will go on trusting in you. You are the God of covenant faithfulness, and you will ultimately deliver me. He's saying, I'm not going to give up on the God who will not give up on me. He lifts his eyes from off off himself and off his distress, and he looks to God. And in our distress at those times when perhaps we have feel abandoned by God, when when we sense that he's not answering our prayers, this is what we too must learn to do. 
to look away from ourselves and to look to God. And in particular, to think of the nature of the relationship that God has entered into with us. God has taken the initiative to enter into a relationship with us. We see that He has chosen us. We see that He loved us while we were still in our sins. We see that He gave His one and only Son to save us. We see that He established a new covenant sealed in His blood with us. He has given us His Holy Spirit as a guarantee of our inheritance that is to come. He has promised by His unbreakable Word never to leave us nor forsake us. He has told us that there is nothing that is able to separate us from His love. He has prepared for us an inheritance that will never perish, spoil, or fade. It is kept for us and He is keeping us for it. We go through many experiences in life, but our fixed point in life is the nature of God and the relationship that He has chosen to enter into with us. Samuel Rutherford, a Scottish Puritan minister who knew what it was to suffer for his faith, once wrote, Believe God's Word and power more than you believe your own feelings and experiences. Your rock is Christ, and it is not the rock which ebbs and flows, but your sea. Here's the danger. We believe our own feelings. We look at our own experiences. Yes, they will ebb and flow. But as Rutherford says, the rock does not move. The rock that is Christ Jesus does not move. It does not ebb and flow. But secondly, we see in these closing verses that David doesn't only look to this past commitment that he has made to trusting in God and walking in his ways, he looks forward. He says, I will sing, verse 6, to the Lord, for he has been good to me. This is a slightly odd verse if you think about it, for David says, I will sing to the Lord in the future. For he has been good to me in the past. So he says, I will sing in the future of what he has done for me in the past. David is anticipating a coming day when he will sing with rejoicing as he looks back over God's abundant blessing in his life. Yes, he is distressed. Yes, he's crying out to God in anguish of soul. But he knows it will not always be that way. There is a coming day when he will see the abundant goodness of God, and he will rejoice. He recognizes this has been a tough time in his life, but this is not the whole story. This is not the whole story. There is a future hope. After D-Day in 1944, the Allies' two great generals, General Montgomery and General Patton, saw before them those great opportunities to uh, press on and finish off the Germans, and both of them wanted to to win the war and be seen as a man who who won the war. But they were hugely frustrated that General Eisenhower, the Supreme Allied Commander, wouldn't let them go ahead and finish the job. Why would he not let them go ahead and press on and finish the Germans? 
Well, the reason was they only saw what was in front of them. But Eisenhower, the supreme commander, saw the whole picture. He saw the dangers that would arise if they were allowed to pursue their own plans. Of course, the same is true for us. We only see in part. We only see a fraction of the whole picture. But our sovereign Lord, the supreme commander, sees the bigger picture. However, there will come a day. There will come a day when we will see the big picture, when we will have the wider perspective. There is a coming day when we will look back and rejoice with an inexpressible and glorious joy over God's abundant goodness to us and how he led us in ways that we would not have chosen, in ways that we did not expect, to bring glory and honor to his name and to perfect our lives. And that is a song that will resound throughout all the endless ages of eternity, the goodness and the grace of God. Until then, until then, what do we do? Until then, we look to Jesus. We look to Jesus who died for us, but who has risen and ascended to the right hand of the Father in glory. And seeing him, we know that the end is not in doubt. That having purchased us by his blood, we belong to him. And he will never, ever give us up. Look recently at that passage in Colossians. Our life is now hid with Christ in God. We are his. He will never give us up. He has the power to keep us. There's that great passage of Romans 8 reminds us. There is nothing, there is no one throughout the whole of creation that will ever sever our soul from his love. Timothy Crusoe was a Puritan minister, and he went to school with a guy called Daniel Defoe. Daniel Defoe, Crusoe, get the connection. Well, Timothy Crusoe uh, didn't go on and write books about men on desert islands. He did write about this psalm, though. He wrote this, The departures of God from true believers are never final. The departures of God from true believers are never final. They may be tedious, but they are temporary. He who has engaged to be our God forever cannot depart forever. God loves us. God has entered into a relationship with us. And through all the changing scenes of life, God will never leave us. God will never forsake us. God will never give us up. In a few moments as we eat this bread and drink this wine together, we remind ourselves of that, of the God who has committed himself to us, the God who has entered into a new covenant with us that is unbreakable. May God bless his word to our hearts this morning. Let's take a moment or two to to pray together.